Hey, it's Flaves, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Our guest today is Bill Ritter, who served as Colorado's 41st governor from 2007 to 2011. After his 10 years governor, Bill founded the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. Good morning, Governor Ritter. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing great. As governor of Colorado, renewables were central to your administration, and you were able to sign over 50 clean energy bills into law. Colorado is truly a purple state, and you did this at a time when renewables were considered expensive job killers that could ruin the economy. Could you talk about how you were able to unify stakeholders with such different views about climate change and energy policy? I think the best way to talk about that, Ryan, is to go back before I was even a candidate for governor. People of the state of Colorado passed a measure on the ballot that actually required the investor-owned utilities to get to 10% renewables by 2015. And, you know, the major utility, XL Energy, had opposed that, as had a lot of other groups. The people still passed it. And there was clearly an appetite on the part of the people of Colorado to have more renewables on the grid. And so I started campaigning in 2005, and we had very few uh, megawatts of any kind of wind or solar on the grid. We had a lot of coal, we had a lot of natural gas, and we produced both. And so we started talking about developing a new energy economy that said, you know, it's going to be about clean energy. And we didn't discount things like natural gas, but we just said, we're going we're gonna to do this, you know, as clean as we can. And part of that was to inspire a build out of renewables. So we went to 20% in 2007. And the utility actually supported it, now understanding that its customers love renewable energy. Then we went to 30%, and by that time, the price curves had begun to shift. Excel understood they could build wind for pretty cheap, and they supported a 30% by 2020. Like you said, we did that with bipartisan support because this issue, clean energy, had not become sort of the wedge issue that it later became nationally both at the federal level and at the state level around the country. And it was a different time. I did sign 57 different bills that are clean energy bills or advanced energy bills, but we did that some with bipartisan support, not all of the things we did. We had bipartisan support. It was really about trying to advance an energy economy where we use domestic resources that were environmentally sound, where there was economic development potential for that pillar of our uh, agenda, and that we uh, paid attention to equity, how we could do this without doing it on the backs of poor people or lower income, middle income people. You mentioned that at a national level, this has become an overtly partisan issue. And you've pointed out the U.S. Congress is the last governing body on the planet still fighting over whether climate change even exists. What can we do to make the transition to clean energy less of a Democrat versus Republican battle and more of a unifying bipartisan issue like the economy or terrorism? It seemed like the intractability of getting anything done was pretty solid a few years ago in Congress. And and what we saw were a variety of Republican governors around the country begin to move clean energy agendas in Nevada and Michigan and Illinois and uh, Massachusetts and Maryland. I mean, these were card-carrying Republicans saw the economic potential for it. The important thing to know here is that the downward price decline has been so significant. No one would have predicted it when I governed that, you know, when Excel said they wanted to go to 55% renewable by 2025, 2026, they led an RFP, a request for proposals. They got over 400 and the deals for wind were less than two cents. 
kilowatt hour. It was a big, like a 75, 80% decline in the price of wind power. The price of solar plus storage also had enormous declines. We have to push that point with people on both sides of the aisle who still think that clean energy is too expensive. It is intermittent, so there have to be solutions for its intermittency, but that's part of the way to change the dialogue is instead of making it about climate change necessarily, then with people who may not be believers in climate change, make it about the economics, make it about the market. You know, people on the right side of the aisle, they talk about markets and the function of the markets. This is the functioning of the market. While the end goal is clearly decarbonization and an electric grid that has zero emissions in 30 years, could you talk about the role for natural gas during that transition? Yeah, I think that's up in the air. What we what will be the role for natural gas? We're moving out of coal in 15 years. 95% of all the coal that existed in the Intermountain West and the Western Interconnect, that's going to be gone. It's 95%. And there's no CEO of a major utility who will disagree with you about the big coal shutdown that's coming. And in the West, when we've shut down coal since 2008, there's a lot of new renewables on the grid, but not new natural gas. That's not true for the rest of the country because they've shut down coal in other places around the country. 75% of what has replaced the coal shutdowns has been natural gas. So natural gas presently has a role. We couldn't go to 100% renewables tomorrow uh, with all the storage capability we have. We still couldn't get anywhere near there. XL Energy will say, we uh, know we're going to reduce our emissions by 80%, and we have a goal to reduce them 100% by 2050. We just don't know how. The path forward is going to involve more renewables, more storage, and then as we further decarbonize the energy economy, natural gas will only have a role if it finds a non-carbon solution, like carbon capture and sequestration, where you capture the CO2 off of the flue stack and you capture it. You sequester it or you utilize it, one or the other. But if we have not managed to do that, uh, natural gas is a hydrocarbon. And in 2040, 2045, when all of these states have really significant goals on emission reduction, natural gas won't have much of a role to play. You know, and, and if it's not natural gas, then it might be other things like hydrogen. I've heard people talk about ammonia, uh, maybe better storage technology. There's all sorts of things that we can think of that it might be but it might not be natural gas in 2040 or 2045. As we talk about the transition from coal, it's important to recognize that as a nation, coal's made us very rich. We owe much of our wealth and development to cheap electricity that came from coal. And as we shut down more of these coal-fired power plants, what can we do to limit the disruption to those communities whose economies are based on coal, both in Colorado and at the national level? Well, that's a $64,000 question. We still have plant closures in the next 10 to 15 years that will disrupt communities in a pretty serious way. Tri-State announced the closure of Nucla. The Navajo Generating Station was closed this year, just now, I think. 750 members of the Navajo tribe work on that coal-fired generation plant. In the Hopi, they had the coal mine owned by Peabody, and they've had to shut down that coal mine. That was 80% of their revenue. So the utilities are trying to think how they might transition workers. There's the possibility of early retirements. There's a possibility of some kind of transition work where you go to another job inside the same company. And then there's retraining that's possible. And it's important to note that people who live in coal communities, coal-dependent communities, either as coal miners 
because they run coal-fired generation. They've done this for generations. And quite frankly, I say something very close to what you said. That we really owe so much of our good fortune to coal. They helped us create the middle class in America. They helped us create a manufacturing sector that was the envy of all the rest of countries that wanted to be industrialized. And it was really the coal-powered sector that helped us build that out and helped us provide the energy fairly cheaply. And so people talk about a war on coal. It's not a war on coal. It's a war on carbon or CO2. And if there are solutions to save coal, we got to think about that the same way as if there are solutions to save natural gas. So what do we do with those communities if they shut down plants and coal is not being utilized at all going forward? First of all, listen to the communities about the things that they want or need in the build out. The worst thing of all is to be patriarchal about local economy that's struggling and think that you have all the answers without talking to the people who live there, the people who work there, the people who are responsible for the policies that are the economic drivers for the local community. So you do that, you listen to them, and then, you know, some of what's being considered is what big utilities might do when they leave those workers behind. They're just like the coal-fired generation that closed early. They're a stranded asset. How do you take care of a stranded asset? I think there's some ways to do that, you know, some kind of a wage agreement for a period of time as they transition out of coal. But there should just be every thought given both as the utility that's leaving, as a coal mining company that's leaving, and really the people who work in the legislature, the governor's office, the governor himself should all be thinking about how we take care of these communities. From a global level, I know that you and your family work for years as volunteers in Zambia. And as we look at countries around the world like Zambia, where electricity is going to be a critical element of their development, what can we do to help them prosper while also helping them bypass coal and helping them bypass the carbon load that we required for our development? I'm also the chair of a board of a small utility in Rwanda that puts microgrids into villages in Rwanda where there is no power. We could definitely try and think about how we build out clean energy in Africa. They didn't cause the problem of climate change. They have a very small footprint, particularly relative to United States or China or India. But we're going to have to think about building that power out in a clean fashion. There's also places where they don't have transmission lines. So it's not just building solar or wind or things like that. It's building them and then transmitting the power to locations that are a long way away. So, you know, in the case of Rwanda or Zambia or places where there's a lack of energy access, microgrids, solar microgrids with batteries, you might get 15 or 16 hours of power as opposed to 24, but that's infinitely superior to none. Our scientists have built an AC core onto a DC grid. And why that's important is the DC grid supported by panels and batteries was really just enough to go into homes. It couldn't take a heavier demand and what we call productive uses. So we put an AC core into it. And with the productive uses in Zambia, we installed a bunch of these and people can sew or they can mill or they can weld or refrigerate. I mean, just think of those as things that people can't do when there's no electricity access and things they can do afterward and how many of those things can really change a person's well-being. So, Bill, first, I want to thank you for your pioneering and courageous leadership as governor of my home state of Colorado, and then your continued work at the Center for a New Energy Economy. Through a mix of vision and pragmatism, you continue to provide and model how we can get to a carbon-free electric grid. Thank you for these contributions to our future, and thank you for joining this episode of Climate Changers. Hey, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. 
Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.